colleagues, wherever you are and from wherever you're joining us, good morning, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Caitlin Byrne. I'm the director of the Griffith Asia Institute here in Brisbane and really pleased to be welcoming you to this joint event hosted by the Griffith Asia Institute in La Trobe Asia, focusing on gendering the pandemic. And let me begin firstly in the spirit of reconciliation by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we're meeting. For me, joining you from Brisbane, they are the Turrbal and Jagera peoples but I understand there are many others across the widest reaches of this virtual platform. So I pay my respect to elders past and present and extend that respect to all Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander peoples joining us today. And let me also acknowledge that many of you are possibly joining us from many time zones in Australia and across the globe, so welcome. Look, I should begin this afternoon by noting firstly how pleased I am that, that we here at Griffith Asia Institute are able to work jointly with La Trobe Asia to bring a conversation about women in the region and bring women's voices from across the region to the fore. Today's conversation is really the culmination of many conversations that La Trobe Asia Director uh, Associate Professor Beck Strating and I have had across a number of years now um, to really try and find ways where we can actually bring the voices of women from across our region to the fore to, to talk about key issues, key events and opportunities that we are all facing, but to do so through that kaleidoscopic lens that uh, we're able to share. And today's conversation is really an extension of the conversations that began last week with International Women's Day. Something I think we're keen also to do is extend those conversations beyond the 8th of March, right through the year. So today we wanted to focus on the impact of COVID-19 uh, on women in particular. We know that its effect has been disproportionate for women and girls across the Asia Pacific region, whether we're talking about the alarming increases in domestic violence during extended lockdowns to the growing gender gap in employment and representational opportunities. We know that addressing these challenges requires us to be thoughtful and to be creative and to think in a more gender sensitive way, both in research and policy making, to ensure that the voice and visibility of women and girls is taken seriously in decision making pro processes across private and public sector spheres. So as we manage the difficult task of recovery from COVID-19 and the ongoing and long term impacts of the pandemic, there really hasn't been a better time to lift our ambition on women's representation and participation across all the spheres of our uh, societies today, but especially in leadership roles. But how do we make this ambition a reality? Well, that's really the topic of today's conversation. And to talk us through the challenges and opportunities that we are facing right across the Asia Pacific, we are joined by a fabulous panel of women. They include Professor Vivian Lim, Executive Associate Dean and Professor of Practice in Public Health at the LKS Facility of Medicine, Hong Kong University and Adjunct Professor at La Trobe Asia. We're also joined by Dr. Darisha, my colleague here in Brisbane, Senior Lecturer and Director of Engagement in the Department of Business Strategy and Innovation and member of the Griffith Asia Institute here at the Griffith Business School. And finally, Rice Chanchai, ASEAN Governance, Peace and Security Lead with UN Women Indonesia. We are truly delighted to have you all here with us today. And without further ado, let me hand over to my friend and colleague, Dr. Beck Strating, to take the conversation forward. Over to you, Beck. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction, Caitlin. It's always terrific to work with you uh, and the Griffith Asia Institute team, particularly on issues that we care very much about. And you are right, this is part of a conversation that we have been having for a number of years now. Uh, and I'd also like to extend my welcome to this expert panel. We're delighted that you are able to join us. Uh, and also to our audience members who I would just like to say, 
please feel free to put your questions in the Q&A box as we go along. Um, and we will have some time at the end to address your questions. So uh, we really would like you to be a part of the conversation tonight. I'm going to start with Vivian. Uh, and it's a big question. I'm going to apologise for giving you this big question to start with, and I'm aware that I'm asking a lot of you, but I'm wondering whether you can give us an overview of the broad trends of how the pandemic has affected women across Asia. Okay, Beck, it is a big question and a big ask, but let me, I, th I think there's probably a number of different things to note that is both similar and different about Asia. One of the things that's different is that people have talked about the Asian exceptionalism. And that is over the last two years, many of the countries in Asia have done much better in terms of the overall rates, um, both incidents as well as deaths. There's lots of reason why that might be the case, but we now are also seeing that the rates are just absolutely raging in what have been COVID zero countries. Um, so the picture is changing, but nonetheless, for two years, Asian countries have done pretty well. But that's not to say that the impact has been evenly distributed within Asian countries. Now, I think when we look at all countries, we see that the people who are in insecure employment have had difficulties more than others. We have seen, uh, as Caitlin mentioned at the outset, the increase in gender-based violence and those mental health issues. But one of the things that's also been, in a sense, disappointing is that the reporting on the pandemic actually does not give the disaggregation, the data disaggregation we need to really understand the gender dimensions in a very systematic way. So instead we rely on studies or we look at what are the risk factors. Now, if we think about the risk factors, women are at greater risk because they are the frontline carers at home they are the frontline carers in the health system as nurses. They are the frontline carers in the aged care sector as care attendants. So in these various roles, they are exposed and they are at risk. And of course, when women also locked down at home end up doing more of the household chores, more of the homeschooling for the kids, the mental health and the stress issues become also more significant for women. And even the academic women, what we do know is that the production and submission of academic papers has been much greater for men than women during this period of time. So, um, so that really is a very gendered dimension. But if we actually also look at what's been going on in society and the system more generally, many Asian countries do not have well-developed social security systems. Many Asian countries do not have um, universal health financing schemes. And so this all really impacts on women, many of whom in Asia are in the informal sector workforce and so have less protection. Um, and of course, when the health system is so focused on addressing COVID, services like maternal and child health um, and cancer screening services such as breast cancer and cervical cancer are then deferred. So the impact really comes in so many different ways. Um, and an interesting recent study by APEC, the Healthy Women, Healthy Economy Working Group, also suggests that in the high income countries in the region, we actually are now see declining fertility, 
And in the low-income countries, we're seeing increase in un unintended pregnancies because of the lack of access to contraception. So these are just, I think, some of the interesting dimensions that we are seeing. And there's, of course, room for a lot more fine-grained analysis country by country. Thank you for uh, addressing that very broad question so well. Uh, you've really started off our discussion with a, just a sense of the, the enormous range of ways in which uh, the impacts of the pandemic are, can be gendered or are gendered across the region. So I wanted to follow up with, um, you know, in your view, what are the biggest challenges or barriers to ensuring that women are not affected disproportionately by global pandemics such as COVID-19? What do we need to do better to reduce the impacts that you've outlined? Well, I, th I think there's really still the question of how do we get out of this pandemic and what can we do? And we do see, you know, some measures and we're seeing for the first time increased attention to things like, you know, personal protection equipment are made for guys. And actually, and Asian women tend to be small. So there's lots of little things that actually still need to be addressed. But I think if we're thinking about the next pandemic, indeed the next variant, because there will be more, the question is, what does preparedness look like in the system? If we know already over the last two years that there's a gendered impact, there's an unequal impact across society, then surely the most important thing in preparedness is to think about having taking a gender lens, taking an equity lens, so that we're reviewing all our activities, all our strategies in a targeted way that actually starts to prevent some of the same inequities from happening again. Now, when we think about, you, you know, one of the positives from this uh, pandemic has been actually the acceleration of the digital economy. So how do we make sure that we don't have a digital divide? Indeed, we can use that acceleration of the fourth industrial revolution to improve um, the status for women in many different ways. And similarly, how do we make sure that as we you know, build back better, as people say, we are actually building a better social welfare system, a better health financing system, because these are these systemic measures are also important in addition to the targeted measures. Uh, thank you, Vivian, and I'm sure we can unpack some of those um, challenges and solutions later on in the Q&A. But Dara, I'd like to turn to you. You have extensive research uh, and research interests and have published on uh, social innovation projects within the area of gender and Indian women in business. So uh, how do you see the pandemic as affecting women in business across the region? It is actually a very, very interesting question. Thank you for that. I think um, if you look at tw in 2020, when the pandemic actually hit, most about over 90% of small businesses globally were affected. You know, the lockdowns happened, the governments were, uh, you know, putting a lot of restrictions in place. Businesses didn't know what was happening and how they're going to deal with it. So that period in itself was a very interesting time for most businesses. However, over time, we saw that, you know, the businesses that were agile and, you know, they moved forward and they innovated and moved forward. Interestingly, during that time as well, research suggested that the support, the kind of support that uh, from public and from government that was available, women were actually the least likely to have taken on that support. Men were the more the recipients of most of that support. And um, we were actually doing two projects at the time, and we had started in 2019. One of the projects was uh, looking at Indian women social entrepreneurs and looking at their challenges, their motivations, what were their struggles and just their stories. And um, 
once the pandemic hit, because we had already developed those relationships, after um, a period of about seven to eight months, we actually met these women, I mean, online, we interviewed these women again. And what we what we saw was very interesting. About a third of the women spoke about, okay, we can't do our businesses. Everything has stopped. The lockdowns had made it very difficult. Um, in India particularly, and in many other Asian countries, there is house help available generally. But during the lockdown, nobody had that house help. Everything had to be done by the women of the house, usually. The kids were studying, so there was homeschooling that had to be done, um, cooking, cleaning, everything fell onto their head. And these women spoke about, okay, that we just can't do it. You know, we just haven't been able to sustain our business. We don't have the time to give our business. We haven't been able to get out. That kind of impact they had, and they had kind of given up on their businesses. But two thirds of the women that we spoke to said, yes, initially, we didn't know what was going on. We had put a stop, but we decided that that's, we have to do something. They had all the expansion plans, which they said we put it aside, but they kept moving forward with their businesses. They innovated. And as Vivian just said, you know, the whole digital economy, most of the women moved their businesses online. Uh, in India in particular, e-health wasn't very um, common. Not many people use e-health. People just like to go and see a doctor physically. But that during that pandemic, a lot of that education was happening. A lot of these women moved into e-health. And a lot of those innovative ideas were coming up. So overall, yes, the pandemic impacted on uh, women, uh, particularly the women we were looking at. But because they had to fight through, they were resilient at the start, when we looked at their motivations and the challenges that they had experienced for starting their businesses, you know, having joint family systems, having those kind of pressures at home, they had already struggled through that. So they said, we, we just had to do it. We know that that's the only way ahead for us. So I think that was an interesting take on both sides, you know, some who gave up and some who didn't. So, yeah, that was the, just from our research perspective, sorry. Yeah. That's super interesting research. And I really like that point about, you know, that one of the, I guess, unintended consequences of something like a pandemic is actually more people engaging with the uh digital economy and perhaps that will ensure greater resilience when future pandemics come along. Um, but I also wanted to ask you, I mean, thinking about this time of recovery and trying to understand the long-term impacts of COVID-19 and also, as Vivian said, keeping in mind that there's probably sadly going to be more variants. So we're not really in a post-pandemic world order, uh, but the Keeping that in mind, I mean, how can women's representation and participation in business be advanced? Yeah, nice long question. Thank you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think um, women generally, and, uh, again, this is a, an unintended consequence as well, and probably because women have had to fight a long way to come ahead in their businesses, in uh, you know in India in particular where we saw and even in Australia the second research project that we did was um, helping disadvantaged women here to get onto an entrepreneurial journey. We had to really build them up and get them to start having that belief in themselves and confidence. So that initial period of for women is the difficult part to overcome all those challenges. But because once they have done it, we found that they are much more resilient and they were much more agile as when these kind of crises happened because they had faced a lot of these um, struggles and adversities prior to that, you know, banks not trusting them to give them loans. I had women tell me that, oh, they say, where's your dad or where's your husband? Is he coming? So people don't not taking them seriously as business owners. So as business owners, women generally have had to face a lot of those adversities. So they have learned to come out of those things and struggles and be resilient. 
And those things did help them during this time of the crisis when it happened. They said, no matter what, we will be able to do it. You know, we'll look after the family, we'll look after everything, but my business is important and I will focus on that. But when we start unpacking it more, what we saw was all the women that did actually go ahead are the women who had some kind of support. So be that support from having a, a parent, you know, a mom or a dad who was supportive, a husband, a partner who was supportive, a friend who was supportive, and sometimes having a mentor in India as well. There are some women in business groups as well. Some women talked about having that support as well. And, um, you know, government wasn't mentioned a lot, but they said that government support would have been very, very helpful as well. So the ones who gave up, we noticed that they were the ones who did not have much of that support. So support, I think, is the key for women to survive in this business, in businesses. And um, I think having some kind of like, even with the Australian women that we helped, we saw just had that hand holding, that support from us and the government took them a long way. You know, despite COVID challenges, a lot of women, over 70%, continued the businesses. They struggled, they innovated, they were ironing, doing, you know, little businesses that they can do from home. And so I think having that support structure in place is very, very important, particularly because, um, uh, you know, the governments have not really focused on women as much as business owners. And we haven't had as many women in business. Looking at India and even in Australia, a lot of that unorganized sector of businesses are run by women. And uh, governments need to just take that more seriously. So that would be a recommendation, I think, in terms of in times of crisis, why didn't women actually take on these support systems when they were available? Is it because of the challenges that they're going through in personal um, you know, lives, or is it because those are like far further away from them? Is it making it much more challenging? So just, yeah, having that whole policy change would be important. Thank you. Thank you, Dara and Ras. We're really delighted to have a representative from UN Women joining us. And I wanted to start uh, by asking you how the pandemic has affected uh, women and particularly women's representation and leadership uh, in Indonesia, uh, because you're joining us from Jakarta, but also in Southeast Asia more generally. Thank you so much for, for that questions and really trying to link to, it's a nice um, transition after we heard from the previous uh, speakers. Um, I think in, in, the, in Indonesia, as well as in uh, Asia, uh, Southeast Asia region, there has been one significant uh, pattern that surfaced during the past couple of years right in the in the communities and, and the countries with with best COVID response were led by women and this was um, we were very pleased to see these trends and the recognition of women leadership in, in COVID-19 response um, because you, you see this as a sheer number as a sheer um, when we look at okay who's the frontline COVID responder um, which we're talking from the health workers that are um, majority made up with women down to the communities um, who's actually uh, doing this work in, in really support of people in need. Um, so I think we have been quite, um, we have seen this, this very clear trends of, of greater appreciation of women leadership uh, with the power co of collaborative and empathetic leadership. I think there's a lot of discussion about that. It was not something to celebrate it, right? But um, there's suddenly a, a whole discussion about, you know, who's doing well in COVID response, uh, important of diversity of ideas, flexibility that is much needed in response to, to crisis especially in the face of unknown and uncertainties. However, it's also highlighted clearly that women are still un underrepresented in the COVID response in this region. And uh, UN Women and UNDP have come together and we are actually quite active in providing this, this data 
um, not just like highlighting new data that was not there before, but looking at it from the gender perspective. So we put together a global gender response tracker. Actually, you, you all can, can actually visit it and, and look across 11 COVID-19 task forces in eight ASEAN member states where data was available. Uh, we see only 25% of women represented or less in these COVID-19 task force. And three out of 11 do not have women representation at all. So you can see that there's a clear mismatch, right? In terms of you see women frontline responder as a health workers, as a community frontline responder, as a protector in the families and all of these things. But at the decision-making level, it's, it's a clear mismatch in that. And, and UN Women has been advocating for more diverse representation of women and men. That is, it's important to, to ensure the specific needs of the women, particularly those of marginalized group and, and similar to what the previous speakers highlighted, has been included in the development, uh, planning and budgeting of COVID-19 response and recovery. So um, here's this, this is why it's really, really important uh, because the trends that I've seen, for example, in Indonesia, uh, they have the three pillars of response, one of which is clearly looking at economic recovery. And make no mistakes, ASEAN member states understand full well the importance of MSME um, because majority of the backbones of our economy is made by SME, majority M and S, right? The micro and small size businesses. And, and a lot of people talking about women-led, women-owned micro small businesses are important, they need support. But when you actually look at the policy, the policy have also a huge um, stimulus packages that you have seen coming out from ASEAN member states, have a strong focus on support and cash support for micro, small, medium, micro, small, medium enterprises. But they lack the gender lens. They never actually have actually a clear, specific focus, the targeted focus on women-owned MSME. One of the things that I've learned doing this research in Indonesia, looking at how women-owned micro-small enterprises are actually responding or coping with the COVID strategy through digitalization, um, is to understand and unpack the specific industries and the type of ownership, which is actually very difficult. So the reason why there is, we're very clear when it comes to sizes of business, what is small, what is micro, but when we're talking about women-owned micro-small enterprise, it's become really murky. It's become very difficult because the registration of ownership is unclear. And sometimes it depends on the partnership, right? Because these businesses are very small. Sometimes it's, it's a one-owner kind of business. Sometimes it's an, a business that's owned by husband and wife. And there's it really depends on the structure of relationship and ownership and partnership which is not always very clear cut. So we find that complexity very much in, and, and we're zooming into food and beverage industry. We partner with Gojek. And if any one of you know Gojek in Indonesia is a huge uh, unicorn, right? It's have millions of people. It's a multi, uh, this what we call super trendy platform economy. So it's not just going call for car ride and food like Grab, but it's also have all, all kinds of services online that actually women are providing services. And initially, we wanted to to partner with them to look at women um, in informal work, uh, daily wage workers, because they have this platform called Go Glam. You can call these ladies to come in and do massage, do your nails, and, do, and they're completely wiped away in COVID because no one's called them for these services anymore, so they actually close it down. So I think uh, the problem with data is, is really a key. It's really a key, and, and, and when we come to this momentum, we also saw in 2020 in ASEAN, there's a significant momentum of women leadership in ASEAN, including in the ASEAN uh, Special Summit session on women empowerment in digital age. There's a clear discussion about it at a high level. There's a meetings of women parliamentarians at the ASEAN Interparliamentary Assembly and the first, first ASEAN Women Leader Summit in 2020, end of 2020, talk about the role of women leadership in COVID response. And finally, um, ASEAN Comprehensive Recovery Framework has put a strong emphasis on gender equality as a cross-cutting priority. So you have all these policy framework, but I think uh, looking at um, practical advancing that leadership, it's much more 
difficult than that, right? But at least you have that recognition at the high level and that policy level. So I stop here. Um, I hope that was not too too lengthy. No, that was terrific. Super interesting. I mean, the points that you make about the data and, you know, as researchers, we like to have a clear sense of, of data and to be reassured um, that the data is going to tell us something accurate. But, um, you know, there's so many fuzzy areas when it comes to, to gender. So that's really interesting. But you did preempt my next question uh, by talking about some of the, the frameworks uh, at the, uh, in ASEAN for, um, you know, uh, promoting, I guess, women's leadership in COVID response. So I wanted to ask you what role can regional organisations like ASEAN or international organisations like the UN play uh, in this period of COVID-19, hopefully recovery, um, to advance women's representation and leadership uh, in politics, but also in, in business and, and society more broadly? Thank you. I think we are coming to a very practical issues of how, right? We know the what, but the how is always a sticky point. And really, when we're talking about a political participation, whether it's in the public sphere or in private sector, in all spheres of life, we have to, what COVID actually give us in this kind of terrible, challenging circumstances is that it has made the agenda the feminist movement has been talking for years with no one cares come to life on unpaid care work. That really we are under our economies, this very gendered structure of our economies, right? Because we're always talking about only the paid side. And all of us probably, at least at the panel level, I'm sure all of us are converted. If we have children, we know that the unpaid side is actually subsidized the paid side. And the unpaid size, actually, one interestingly, is like some of the moms or anyone who has actually been through actually childcare know that if you miss the beat, somebody die, right? If you miss the beat at work, what could have actually been like the worst circumstance of losing profits, you know? Like, but you don't get the same kind of recognition. And I think COVID actually brought this kind of like very like clear in your face with the policymakers that care work that is invisible work is work. And it needs to be recognized that if you actually wanted to talk about women leadership, I will have no uh, ability or, or opportunity to participate in actually any of this work and thrive in any leadership position without the support from my husband. That it has to be a partnership, that it has to recognize that fair share of unpaid care responsibility. So I guess when we're talking about policy decision making, there's a wide range of measures that we need to discuss in order to advance the role of women in, in leadership position across the board. Is that we need to look at not only economic security measures that targeted women, which is the first one I was talking about. The second part is that we need to look at particular measures that address unpaid care and domestic responsibility um, and certain temporary measures that, that, will, that will promote this social norm change, right? That is promote is this shared responsibility because these gender equality issues will never be addressed until men actually share the responsibilities of raising the new generations. That's actually how we look at this leadership and we wanted to seize this opportunity to advance the conversation that the leadership is not about uh, let's you know putting the women are not having enough capacity let's build the capacity for their leadership because they don't have enough capacity but what about the real opportunity costs that they have to actually make and we have the data we have the data of how much women sacrifice more than men to actually leave paid work because of this unpaid care during the crisis so i think that when we're talking about and then and then it's almost like a a portfolio, right, or a pipeline of leadership. So how do we get them to actually become in the top decision-making decision if they cannot actually, we cannot build the pipelines of women because they're already been filtered out before they get there. So I think um, some of the things that we were talking about is not only to make, uh, as an international organization, to make this connection and build the regional normative framework and to actually advances at the, the level of policy dialogue and discussion. We also like help with the data. We also help to talk about quantifying what kind of measure we're looking at, the linkages between unpaid, between um, 
economic security and safety because the whole violence issue that my previous speaker was talking about that came to light during um, the pandemic. So last but not least, I wanted to say though that I believe we need to focus on building forward better with the comprehensive gender response post-pandemic recovery plan. Uh, and that's like comprehensive women leadership as well. So I think that's what talk about go beyond advancing women representation and leadership only, but to look at the interlinkages of issues because COVID brought to bear that interlinkages that otherwise people compartmentalize it and don't see it until you got trapped at home and do this work online and have the children in the back and my children coming out and, you know, like have to do all these other things at the same time. So it just make it undeniable, right? So let me just end here by highlighting three key important feature. Gender data analysis inform policy decision making. Cross-sectoral collaboration is important COVID response. And when we talk about cross-sectoral um, collaboration in COVID response and recovery plan is about bringing gender into that. Uh, cross-sectoral plan. And we don't really work cross-sectoral. We work very silos, right? But I think that's sort of brought that to bear. And we we look at that in, in UN Women in ASEAN. I think we're trying to do some of uh, cross-sectoral work. We put gender into the heart of disaster and emergency response and started to experiment. It's actually emerging. It's not yet like a successful case, but it's emerging to say, okay, what does it look like? How do we bring people who don't talk to each other to see, okay, you know, there's a cross fertilization here that can translate into policy action. And finally, the gender sensitive measure and action that I mentioned, I think that would be, it would go a really long way if we wanted to talk about women representation and leadership across the board, because we cannot represent, we cannot lead unless we're safe and we secure and we have job opportunities. Over to you, Beck. Thank you. Uh, please uh, feel free to put uh, questions in the Q&A box. We've got about 20 minutes for uh, Q&A, but I did want to bring the conversation back to Vivian for the moment. Just, um, Rice, you are talking about the importance of, you know, taking a cross-sectoral approach and how the pandemic has revealed how these issues are really interlinked, even though they've often been sort of compartmentalised. And I know, Vivian, um, your area of expertise is public health and these are systems and they're all about sort of thinking about the ways that different sectors are, are linked and related. So I wondered uh, whether you can give us your thoughts about how public health systems might be better designed or at least um, enhanced in order to deal with, um, you know, the gendered impacts of pandemics? You know, I think, I think you know, Rice talked about um, people working in silos. And I would say that if I go into the health system, I can see so many silos just even within the health system, which has not helped in terms of, you know, the response to the pandemic. I mean... You know, the public health people might do the contact tracing and collect the statistics, but it's the primary care people who need to reach out and work with the communities, while the hospital people, you know, need to be thinking about how to manage people and what happens when people are discharged. So they need to be working with primary care. Primary care needs to be working with public health. So even from within a health system perspective, we could do much, much better. And the health system tends to just, you know, for the moment they're like focusing on um, COVID as if it's some new thing. It is a new thing, yes, but we have had other pandemics before. Why haven't we learned the lessons from other pandemics? HIV is a pandemic. It's still going on. And one of the most important lessons from HIV um, is the importance of engaging communities and how people work with each other, support each other. Um, so I think, you know, there's a lot of lessons. So then we go into different countries and we start to unpick, you know, in, in Hong Kong, for instance, we have migrant workers women who come to Hong Kong to work as domestic helpers who are often just left in between the cracks of the various schemes and programs and 
um, and you know community organizations. We have, uh, you know, part of government that's thinking about housing and not done anything to actually create affordable housing. And then you've got, you know, 30,000 cases a day where you're telling people to isolate at home, but there's no place to isolate at home. So, you know, the problem we see are really the legacies of people not putting the community at the center. And if we thought about people, the communities at the center, we connect much better the different sectors and the solutions. Yeah. Thank you, Vivian. Uh, it's great to see a couple of questions uh, coming in the q and It'd be great to get some more. Uh, but this one is from Dominic, who says the discussion is very interesting, and I agree. I think it's an absolutely fascinating discussion. Um, uh, he's interested to know uh, if our panel have insights into the differential impacts of COVID-19 on opportunities for leadership and participation for urban women uh, versus uh, women located in rural areas. So I might ask um, all, I might pose that question to all of our, uh, our panel, uh, but you might also want to consider in your, your response other forms of differential impact within states and whether there are other kind of uh, vectors or um, other ways in which uh, women uh, within particular countries might experience differential impacts uh, beyond just the, beyond the urban rural divide but if we start with that question uh, Dara would you like to, um, to, to to begin yeah thank you so much a uh, very interesting question Dominic thank you I think um, just from uh, the research that we did um, I can speak from that <laughs> and uh, gen uh, we saw that a lot of the women that we were um, interviewing they were helping other women in the rural areas and um, so we saw a very interesting picture I think generally um, in India during that time women actually came out I mean and of course you know lock you know the lockdown did actually have a major impact on the increase of domestic violence um, on amongst um, you know families with and women experiencing a lot of domestic violence and particularly with everybody home and if you go into urban cities like Mumbai like Bangalore and everywhere the houses are very small and uh, everybody is constantly in each other's faces and it becomes very difficult to do your work to get your child to study for your husband to do his work and all of those things so those impacts did happen within those um, uh, within urban areas particularly the more developed cities but as you go towards not just the rural but more um, uh, not as urbanized as Mumbai, Calcutta and uh, Hyderabad and stuff, those cities have got much bigger houses, like you would come to Brisbane, for example, you know, the houses are much more bigger than you would see in Sydney. And so there was more space. And I think space actually does have an impact on the way people work within the families as well and how they relate to each other, because if there is not much space, then that kind of can become much more challenging when you are in complete lockdown and you're not allowed to get out at all which happened in a lot of those cities something that our women uh, participants said to us was in the rural areas these women had again similarly it was the confidence issue for a lot of these women because they were helping um, these rural women to start businesses to knit to create um, something which was more heritage based for those little towns and things like that. Um, it was more of that confidence that they were getting from or that handholding that they were getting from the women folks that we spoke to. And when they did not have that, a lot of women did falter in the rural areas because of other pressures that they had. So there was a little bit of that divide that they did speak about, but of course we didn't look into it as deeply. Um, through their research. So that's just, I hope that answers the question. 
Thank you. And I might also um, get your views on this, Rice, the, the, um, the different impacts on, on urban and r- rural women, but also whether there are other um, differential impacts based on, I don't know, things like age, maybe? Yes, I, I actually, unfortunately, we didn't do a lot of, um, we don't have the data too much to break it down rural urban impact, but we actually have done pretty comprehensive um, rapid assessment, um, actually not just ASEAN member states, but in Asia Pacific, looking at differential impacts of COVID-19 um, um, on women and men. And I think uh, a couple of things that worth highlighting uh, that, that I thought was quite interesting coming out was around um, there's there's many (laughs) there's many different areas that we we can talk about but I think just kind of to quickly look at the kind of areas that 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 we as an organization go around and advocating for all these different different differential areas of impact one is is clearly the whole issues about discrimination and violence against women and protection risks so I won't talk about that anymore. That's very clear, right? Um, with uh, both anecdotal field experience as well as the um, emerging data that we have, both in, in big data and in the kind of um, survey that we have launched. Um, there is an immediate need of women on the front lines that has been overlooked. There are also an issues about interrupted access to sexual and reproductive health and gender-based violence service. Um, that was very clear, right? When you immediately put in a lockdown, this shelter has been closed. One of the things that we scrambled, I have to say scrambled in 2020 between our offices is how do we support um, all these shelters to stay open with the health protocol? How do we make sure the quarantines actually take the gender sensitive approach? So the very, very practical things that we're trying to learn from each other and exchange notes and SOPs. How do we get these things to stay open and, and possible? We talk already about economic um, and empowerment and livelihoods impact and here what is worth highlighting not only the disproportionate impact of unpaid care uh, everyone in the families are doing more unpaid care work I think in terms of both men and women to be fair but obviously we know that women are doing more and putting in more hours and but what was most important here was that women are like ultimately the one who actually sacrifice and take out more hours of unpaid of the paid work in order to compensate with more increasing role of, of care responsibility at home. We're talking about exclusion from leadership role and decision-making processes across the board. We haven't talked so much about mental health and psychological impact. We also have emerging data about disproportionate mental health and psychological impact on women. Um, all of these, you can actually look at, at our, if you, if you type COVID and you and women, I think there's a lot of um, data and evidence that has been done by our research and gender team, uh, research and data team, sorry, um, for the Asia Pacific region. And I think that the new one is actually coming up so you can see uh, what has been, has been the, the, the evolving dynamic, right? Because it's, we, we started our research in and launched it very rapidly in July, uh, 2020, but we're doing another one that is coming up this year, I think next month probably, um, that actually wanted to see what has been the lacking impact right afterwards because obviously it has become an endemic now, so we have to live with it. So, and, and in terms of um, leadership position, that's actually a good question that you asked. I'm actually in the process of trying to get the um, endorsement with the ASEAN member state to see specifically on this because we really wanted to look specifically at women uh, leadership and participation particularly in the context of COVID. Um, I wanted to share with you though because I think that this is something that always a little bit more difficult and you need a little bit more nuances research questions is that the pretext that we have or like the backdrop that we have is rising polarization, shrinking democratic space and rising conservatism in our region, um, at least in the Southeast Asian context. So the what we actually asked in terms of women leadership, are we actually looking at to what extent in the COVID crisis that this whole forces of rising conservatism, rising uh, political divisiveness, and all this like backlash on women's rights actually impact on their leadership in the fields of 
women's rights in the fields of um, peace and security. And one last thing that I can actually emphasize, and I think this is coming out from a really emerging research in, in Oxford Journal, Social Politics. I think this was done by the Young Women Peace Builders Group, that is also our partner, is that they have highlighted that the con uh, in the context of, of peace and security, and I think this is to address the rural side of things, right? Because all these conflict affected areas in the Philippines, in Southern Thailand, in many different provinces in Indonesia are not exactly urban. Uh, some of them are urban, but in the context of like say Mindanao or Southern Thailand, um, we have seen some um, broad co common trends in that um, in many of these places, what is difficult is that there, there may be an excessive use of security measures in times of COVID, and that actually has actually disproportionately impact on women's rights uh, or the uh, women's um, human rights defender. Um, the second areas that I think was pretty clear common is that these are areas where pre-existing they have a have a fray social cohesion, um, where you have a, a large. Um, kind of like the tensions or division across either racial, ethnic um, ideology already pre-existing. So it, it's really hard and it actually has exacerbated that in the context of fear, misinformation and disinformation, especially in the rural context. And, and a lot of our partner and constituencies, for example, in Mindanao um, of our programs there are unable to actually come online too. So there's that whole, I think some of our speakers were talking about digital divide, but it's also very difficult because we're trying to look at conflict mediation, peace building models that inform by women perspective or their gender perspective and dynamic, but unable to do so because these online platform would just not work with them. They just don't have access to that and we won't have their inputs. So I think that's that's two. And then last but not least was that there's a whole overall mistrust in public institution that is weak in delivering uh, social services to begin with. So I think those are the three trends that actually affects it very much differently, women and, and men, and also particular the context of women leadership uh, in the difficult um, governance context that I mentioned. Thank you, Ras and Vivian. I might bring you in on this question as well about the differential impacts of COVID-19. Well, I'm kind of quite interested in this leadership uh, and women's leadership question because I think, you know, back in 2020, people were pointing to New Zealand, Taiwan, Norway, you know, various countries that had women leaders as being the countries that did better. And then there was a subsequent study which looked at all the countries and whether the ones with women leaders did better or not. And it turns out that wasn't quite the case, but it was the countries that had a propensity to have women leaders that did better. Right, so you have to look over time, and there is something about the cultural, the outlook, the, the social norms in a country that meant that they would more frequently have women leaders. So I think that speaks to not just the gender of leadership, but actually the gendered relationships in society. That's actually really, really important. Um, and the other really interesting study that I saw looked at, um, it was a study of private sector companies and how men and women in the organizations responded to the leadership in those large corporations throughout the COVID period. And it turned out that the language that the women leaders used were actually really important. Um, so the men, you know, talked about fighting the virus and used very militaristic, you know, masculine language. And the women leaders use much more empathetic language, much more caring, much more centered. And that went down so much better with both the men and the women. So I think these are quite interesting issues about you know, both the system as well as how you lead and what people really want in times like these. 
That is really interesting. And yes, the importance of language and leadership, I think, is a really important point. Um, we do have a question from one of our Latrobe students. Hi, Catherine. Uh, and I'm going to direct it to Rice because it is about um, Indonesia uh, and specifically about how Indonesian civil society can improve women's political representation during the pandemic and moving forward. Uh, but you might have some ideas about civil society organisations beyond Indonesia as well. Um, but Rice, would you like to address this one? Yes, um, very much so. I think, um, please um, consider me as one of your friends in this struggle. So I'm not an expert. I don't have the absolute answer. We're all trying to figure it out. Um, in my point of view, in my humble, um, I'm always like fascinated by our region, even though I'm like from the region and I've like my whole life studying the region. I always feel like I'm learning every day uh, the nuances of it because it's such a diverse region. In Indonesia alone is like fascinating diversity just Indonesia alone, right? So what I what I thought was very interesting around the leadership issues in our region is that we do have impressive number of women leaders in political arena, in business, in civil society. Um, what I uh, have a little bit of reservation, and I, I am with saying this with a hopeful uh, attitude, that in the past, like maybe in in the previous generation i think there is a lot of disconnect between women leaders in the in the public sphere you if you compare southeast asia right you have impressive women in policy position in ministerial position in even presidential right uh, so that's even more impressive than even though and then our rates in many countries are uh, in terms of at the parliament uh, parliament we are actually higher than some of the other ones but check this out I'm, I'm going to your, your question there is a disconnect of women leaders a lot of we, uh, the trends across our region is that a lot of our women leaders at least the one that that we know from every country you name them they have connection high connection to either the male's brother husband family some type of the male leaders in the political arena uh, and a lot disconnect with the women movements and the civil society that actually trying to advance the gender equality cause. So there, there are that disconnect between women leaders and the decision makers and civil society women leaders who are fighting every day for the everyday life issues of women's underground. But I think that this is shifting. This is shifting uh, with the hope that we actually observing the new generation of women candidates in the pipeline because they're not so much coming from political dynasty as much as like there's a lot of media personality, there's a lot of social media influencer, uh, celebrities. There's a lot of different kind of diversity in that leadership, but we don't see yet uh, whether there will be connects with civil society leader and all these things in the context of, of Indonesia, right? We have a lot of vibrant Indonesian civil society uh, leaders. And this is exactly the point of what we're trying to work on in UN Women is how do we facilitate that connection of women in policy decision-making space, whether in the private sector or in the pu public sector with the women movements. And I think that's our next fight. Before that, we just have to fight to even have the table, right? To be UN women. We were not even UN women before. So without the women movement, there will be no UN women. But I think the next step here is how do we make that connection? How do we convene um, people? And this is not to exclude men. How do you make sure that the men's are okay? with the women coming into the powerful position without feeling that they were threatened by it. So I think that's also something uh, that I think working with the new generation, with the technology, with the connectivity, with the COVID expanding exponential opportunities for connecting women leadership at the grassroots in civil society with a younger, uh, younger generation of leaders that are emerging in the candidate pipeline. And that is my ambition to work on political leadership and political participation uh, in the coming five years in the region. 
over to you. That sounds like an excellent ambition, an excellent project to spend five years on. Very worthwhile. Um, Unfortunately, Dara had to to leave because she's teaching now, Uh, but I would like to thank her and and Vivian and Rice um, for joining us uh, this afternoon. Uh, It was a really insightful discussion. I just thought the three panellists, our experts here today, uh, were absolutely um, just the, the, the extent and the level of expertise and deep thinking on this on these issues is just I've just been blown away um, by how impressive uh, the discussion has been. Uh, and thank you, uh, Professor Caitlin Byrne. Director of Griffith Asia Institute for uh, working with us on putting together this event and giving us a fine introduction. Uh, So, and thank you to our audience members. We hope to see you again at future La Trobe Asia and Griffith Asia Institute's uh, events, Uh, but we will um, have to leave it there. uh, And thank you for joining us.